0: Hello there. It's time for Most Things Kenobi. Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Most Things Kenobi, a podcast about Obi-Wan Kenobi and all things Star Wars. I'm your host Lauren. And I'm sorry to say that my co-host Leanne isn't able to join us today. She had something pop up that called her away. But we still have a great show for you because today we are joined by someone I am thrilled to talk to. She's the author of multiple Star Wars books, including the novels The Princess and the Scoundrel and Rebel Rising, and short stories in both From a Certain Point of View and A Certain Point of View, The Empire Strikes Back Edition. She also wrote the comic book Star Wars Forces of Destiny, Ahsoka, and Padme. And in the non-Star Wars realm, she is the author of numerous novels, including, but by no means limited to, the Across the Universe series, Give the Dark My Love, Bid My Soul Farewell, House of Hex, Museum of Magic, and the upcoming Night of the Witch. Beth Rivas, welcome to Most Things Kenobi. Thank you so much for having me. Did I pronounce your last name correctly now? I forgot to ask you. <laughs> it's okay. It's actually Revis, but everybody messes with Revis. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
1: I usually remember to remind people. It's very common.
0: I'm so sorry. I have one of those last names that everyone always mispronounces, so I, I'm sorry to kick off on that <laughs> incorrect note.
1: It doesn't bother me. It's my husband's, and I'm like, oh, yeah, his people are just weird. It's fine. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you making time. I know you have a a busy schedule and you've got like a travel and tour coming up. So thank you for coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. I want to start with something that I think a lot of our listeners kind of need to hear right now. And a lot of our listeners are creative souls. They have a lot of creativity in the bunch, but also for those who aren't creative. I saw on your, uh, I think it was on your Instagram the other day. You posted something that said bet on yourself mm-hmm. and it was kind of talking about how you became a writer and now you're like a best-selling writer and I kind of just want to start with your take on that. What does that mean bet on yourself to you?
1: Oh, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was actually, I also have a Patreon and that was the post for today it was more about what I meant by that and how, especially when it comes to a creative career, it's almost like a lottery. Because there's a lot of luck involved and nobody wants to admit that because if you're successful and you admit that you have luck, then that's kind of downplaying the actual work that you put into it. if you're unsuccessful and admit that there's a lot to do with luck, then that kind of says, well, it's out of your control. It's it's by chance. And in reality, a lot of creative careers are kind of like a lottery. But if you bet on yourself and you keep entering that lottery and keep making more and more art...
0: Hopefully, the luck will fall in your favor eventually. That's so interesting. And it's true because I I hear so many people say, oh, you're an overnight success. It's like, no, you worked (laughs) your butt off for a really long time and then achieved success. (laughs) But no one sees the hard work. Oh, yeah. No, my publisher for Across the Universe, he
1: actually went and did like a big speech to some writing conference and was calling me an overnight success and kind of described it as like, we found this little country bumpkin, but she had written this book about space and all this stuff. And I'm like, that's not overnight. That's my 10th novel. (laughs) Or 11th, actually. (laughs) I had 10 novels before Across the Universe, none of which sold. I'm like, that was not an overnight success. It was just overnight for you.
0: (laughs) But that's that's the thing. Your body of work is extensive. Like you have a lot of novels under your belt. And I was curious, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer?
1: I think I always wanted to be a writer. Like I, I always loved reading. Like I was the little bookish girl who would stay up all night with a book light reading underneath the covers. So I always wanted to read and write. But I never thought it was a viable career because everybody told me it wasn't. Anytime I would say, oh, I want to write stories or books, people would say, okay, that's great. Get a day job. And I took that to heart. And I'm kind of glad I did because I needed a day job. It took me a decade to break into this career. So it did help to have a day job. But it 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 did sort of limit the dream for a while and made me think, like, it's not really a viable dream. Real people don't do this. But right. they do. <laughs>
0: Clearly, clearly it's possible. (laughs) Yeah. So what was that journey like then getting your first book published? Was it really exciting or did it have some disappointments in it? I mean, how how was that process like?
1: Oh, the having the first one published was great because I really had been trying to get published for literally a decade. I had 10 novels, more than a thousand rejections from literary agents, and then across the universe was just totally, different. I I got lucky in the lottery of publishing in that I had an agent who really liked it. I had a publisher who specifically wanted a sci-fi and there wasn't any, and I had all the publisher support. So I got super, super lucky in that moment, but having a decade of failure kind of grounded me a little bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to trust it. this is really a thing. I got to keep working on this. Um, and in the long run, I'm kind of glad that I had that failure to sort of give me a balance and not make me think that I was like hot stuff I knew that this was just a job and I happened to get lucky that one time but um but yeah it was it was a good a good change and it did change my life because I was able to quit my day job and focus on writing full-time which was an amazing amazing thing I still can't believe like this is my full-time job I'm like how how and I'm waiting for the other shoe
0: to drop but
1: it's no, been more no. than another
0: 10 years so <laughs> I think it comes from it's yes, it's luck. I, I'm sure part of it is luck, but also you have to have the skill to keep it up. Well, skill can be learned. Absolutely, that's the that's what I tell people all the time because I love writing as well, and I've been writing my whole life. Just like you, it's kind of something you were born into. I think sometimes, <laughs> and. I've heard so many people like Francis Ford Coppola said if you want to be a good writer write every day and uh, Margaret Atwood said if you want to fail fail better so that you improve every time it's like it it is a skill to be learned but clearly you have refined it and have turned it into a viable beautiful by the way your your writing is just so beautiful i have to say thank
1: you I think it comes down to really practice because it's not necessarily that I have a skill. I just had the desire that was enough to make me want to practice on my own. And so I just kept practicing. A lot of people, if you use the example of like painting, nobody expects your first painting to wind up in the Met. But a lot of people assume that if you spend a year writing a book, it should get published. And the reality is, is we have to learn how to write and we
0: have to learn how to write every time we write a book. So it's it's very much a long journey. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and you have the series, the Paper Heart series. Isn't that help for writers, right? It is kind of like not a guidebook, but some career advice or writing advice. Mm -hmm. How did you come to start doing that particular? Is it a passion of yours to help other writers or just something that you wish you had had when you were kind of starting out? (laughs) A lot of it is what I wish I had had when I was starting out. Um, the Paper
1: Hearts, the first book of it, came about because I was blogging about my journey and like what I had learned on the way and and everything. And I was just blogging it. And several of my readers said, "We really like your blog, but we want to take notes in the margins. Can you print it for us?" I was like, "Oh, I could." Organize this and like separate it up into categories of everything because I had had years and years of blogging by that point, so I really just compiled yeah. it into blogging. And the the first three volumes are writing, querying, and getting into the market, and then marketing. So those are the first three volumes, and then after that, I started teaching classes because I I actually really like teaching, and a lot of the worksheets that I was making for the classes I was teaching, people were like, oh, I, I want another copy of this for later. And eventually I was like, well, oh, I should just make a workbook. And so I took all the worksheets and jammed them together into a workbook. And now there's now there's three workbooks, a journal, three
0: nonfiction-length <laughs> books. So it kind of exploded. <laughs> that's actually, that's really amazing. I love that it kind of started organically. That's something I think that's so important with creators and creativity. Sometimes if you're trying too hard, you're, you're squeezing the life out of it a little bit. And if you're doing it organically because it's something that you love and that you're passionate about, you draw those kind of people to you and it helps you build like a loyalty in your fan base from a marketing perspective. But even more than that, just like a community around you that that is sustaining. And I think a lot of people don't realize writers are kind of responsible for their own marketing to an extent. And a yeah. publisher doesn't really market you until you've reached a certain I guess, dollar amount. Is that correct? I mean, it depends on the book.
1: Um, One of my lowest paid advances has gotten great marketing. And one of my highest paid advances got no marketing. And it just kind (laughs) of depended with the the one that didn't get any is because my editor left. And then the editor that came after her also quit. And it was just shuffling in house. And Mm -hmm. I kind of got lost in the massive corporation. Um, But it just it depends. And I always try to supplement my own marketing, because I also kind of just enjoy it. I'm very much type A personality. So if the TV's on, I'm like, I can't just sit here and watch television. Let me come up with a bookmark design or something like that.
0: <laughs> so I'm always multitasking. Well, it's good for success, right? <laughs> Not so good for relaxing sometimes, but <laughs> I do need a little help with that one. <laughs> So do you have any like writing rituals when you sit down to write? Do you have a process you follow very specifically every time or is it kind of just wherever, whenever?
1: Wherever, whenever. I mean, it really is. It, it sort of takes some of the magic away from it, but it is a job. And so I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like being creative today but I would also like to get paid. So I guess I'm going to work. (laughs) And I mean, sometimes I'll parcel it out. Like if I'm really not feeling it, I'm like, okay, today's a day where I'm going to go through my emails and do the admin and the brainless stuff. And so it it comes and goes, but I'm I'm just going to sit down and do it. I have an eight year old here at home and like, there's no chance of planning anything. There's no chance to have sweet little rituals because if I light a candle, he's going to come in and blow it out. If I try to put music on, he's going to like drown
0: it out with a Lego movie. There's there's no hope here. Well, it just shows the strength of your mind to be able to still do all that with that distraction around you. It's all chaos all the time. How do you get anything done? I don't know. It's amazing. I just ignore my family and there's not a single clean <laughs> clothing in the house and reading out of Tupperware is fine. <laughs> that's totally fine. I mean, it's important to get the books done. Honestly, I would, <laughs> this is- I'm sitting in a pile of chaos right now because I spend my time doing the creative stuff instead of the technical stuff. So I mean, that's the fun stuff. <laughs> right. Exactly. Life is too short to do dishes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so do you have like a workspace at least, or do you have to just kind of Carve out a little spot for yourself wherever you can. I do have a workspace now. Um, I've
1: only had it since about six months into the pandemic, where I realized that I would murder literally everybody in the vicinity if I could not shut my (laughs) office door. (laughs) And we originally had like a game room and it had like, you know, we had a spare couch, an old relic of that we had passed me down couch and it was just kind of a junk room and I was like okay clearing everything out and I'm buying billy bookcases and this is going to be a thing now (laughs) and so that
0: was my big pandemic project (laughs) that's great I'm like it helps to sometimes have that environment you know separate it really does do you mind if we chat a little about your star wars writing I never mind chatting about star wars (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say I were you always a fan even before you wrote for star
1: wars Always a fan. Actually, the whole reason why I wrote Across the Universe my debut was because of Star Wars. Because I had an idea for, for um, it was basically a murder mystery that had to be contained. And I was like, Oh, I think I want to put this on a spaceship. But I was like, I don't know how to write sci-fi. I don't even like sci-fi because my husband will read really like hard military sci-fi. And mm-hmm. I'm that's not my cup of tea. And I was like, Oh, there's no sci-fi, I can't write a sci-fi. And he was like well, you like Star Wars. And I was like, well, yeah. And he was like, well, that's sci-fi. I was like, oh yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> so that kind of gave me the courage to write a book about
0: space. That's so cool. I love, well, and like to um, kind of branch out into something you weren't sure you were familiar with. And that was your debut. Like that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Every one of the other 10 novels I had written were all fantasy i was gonna say your your other stuff like knight of the witch and everything like that it seems very fantasy based but star wars is that great combination of sci-fi and fantasy really because it's about wizards but in space so exactly <laughs> it's, it's it really is the perfect blend of both it's the best of all worlds <laughs>
1: <laughs> and all galaxies
0: <laughs> yes exactly so how, how did you end up writing for Star Wars? Uh, even our patrons, we opened up some questions the, and they were like, how did, how, how does it happen? How do you become a Star Wars writer? Everybody
1: <laughs> always asks that. Even people who don't want to be writers are just like, but how? Um, <laughs> I, I actually asked uh, my publicist for Rebel Rising. I was like, how did you guys find me? Because whatever I did, like, thank God I did it, but how, because they came to me for it. Um, yeah. And so what it, let me, let me back up a little. I'll say that I got a phone call from my agent, and it was before Rogue One had been announced. It was still being called a Star Wars anthology story. Um, there was no title. Nobody, I think, I think Felicity was attached, but maybe that was it. Like, there was no, like, character names, no plot. Nothing had been released. And my agent calls me, and she's like, would you ever like to write for Star Wars? And I was like, yes, I will do it for free. Just let me go. And she was like, "Okay, don't tell them you'll do it for free." And meanwhile, they wanted to do this thing that's it's not going to be like Han, Luke and Leia. It's going to be this totally different thing. I was like, "I don't care, I'll do it. If it's Star Wars, I'll do it." And it ended up being the Rogue One Rebel Rising novel, and I got to fly to San Francisco and go to the Lucasfilm publishing offices, and then they took us and all the other people who were writing in For the uh, Rogue One movie, they took us into this little room and we each got a copy of the script and we couldn't take our cell phones out. There were no windows, I don't think there are any windows in the room. And we just had to sit at this little conference table and read the script because the the papers could not physically leave the room. It was like as high security as I I could imagine. It's like a Cold War bunker down there. like that it was so crazy um uh, meanwhile i i know sure hand and so i was like pulling direct quotes in my notebook and like re- i was like scribbling as much of the script i was like oh my god this is so good this is so good and i at that point i didn't even know what book i was writing i was just like i have to know the whole script and then i met with my editor and she was like we want you to write a prequel so you don't really need to know anything about the script except for the first five minutes i was like oh, okay gosh. well gosh I'm glad
0: I knew the whole script anyway. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it, does, like, it very clearly tied in very well. Like you even had the characterization down of Jin. And like, I don't know. It seemed pretty flawless. Like you already knew what was coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a lot. I mean, I definitely, I did know what was coming. So that that was very yeah. helpful. And I could, it was almost like working in reverse with a character. Like I knew where she ended up and I knew how she started off. For her first seven years of life. And I just had to fill in the middle and connect those two dots. And so it was a fun challenge to try to show how she became as jaded as she was. But yeah, it was it was
0: a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience that I'm still pinching myself over. I it's one of my favorite Star Wars books. I'm I'm actually a very picky Star Wars book reader, and it it just blew me away. It was and it broke my heart. <laughs> it was so good. And so like it was just. That's, but we say this all the time on our podcast Star Wars is pain. Like, it's just that is how it is. It was very in character to <laughs> have it be poetic and beautiful and sad and awesome. She was a badass at the same time. And I loved that you had the Wobani stuff, like the back and forth between her prison and then what her, oh gosh, it was so good. That was so good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That, it was it was really just such a dream to write, and I loved it. Even though I had to end up rewriting most of it. <laughs> so, when you get a Star Wars project, do they give you parameters that you need to hit, or are you kind of just given an overview and you kind of fill in the blanks? Or Star Wars is so
1: good to work with, and I'm not saying that just because I want to work with them for the rest of my life, but <laughs> they sincerely are great people to work with. Um, so, for for this one for Rebel Rising, they were like, okay. You start here when Jin's a child and you tell us what happens. And they're like, we know what happens here. We know what happens here. You fill in the middle. You have free creativity and free reign. And so I could come up with anything I wanted to within those parameters. Um, And then some of the script did end up changing and that sort of changed the parameters. So they didn't like make me rewrite it or anything, but to make everything fit, I did have to do a lot of rewriting there at the last Sort of the last second on it. But um, but yeah, they just basically were like, here's here's this block of time. Fill it with whatever you want. And so like
0: with, as we all know there's like Star Wars canon kind of violence in, in the Star Wars universe. But yours was definitely, I don't want to say it was heavier, but it was definitely more mature. Especially considering that she had all these different heartbreaks that she goes through. And then the prison was pretty dark and bleak. Did you get any pushback on anything like that, or did did you kind of push it as far as you felt like they would let you? Or I don't, I don't think I was very conscious of it. I <laughs> I mean I guess
1: it is pretty bleak, but I didn't I didn't think I was bleak at the time. I was just like, oh well, this is what's gonna have to have to happen to her character, and so I just did the thing and handed it to him, and they're like. Yep, that's cool. It was
0: so good. To, and it's realistic, yeah. I think. I mean, if you're going to get a character who's as jaded as she is, there's kind of a natural progression that's going to have to happen to get to that point.
1: Yeah, that that was the thing. It really was about breaking someone's spirit, but not all the way, because
0: she still has to have the ability to see hope again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you find any of the... Because you've also written Princess Leia and Han Solo and all the amazing... <laughs> characters in the princess and the scoundrel and did you do you find any of the characters are easiest to write and some that are much harder to write or do you just kind of enjoy playing in the sandbox so to speak i i love playing in the sandbox leia and han there was a lot of pressure
1: to get those right because when I wrote Rebel Rising, nobody knows, or at the time, nobody knew who Jin was, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: she was a blank slate. And so nobody could tell me I got it wrong because there wasn't a right yet. But literally everybody on Earth knows Han and Leia. And if I mess <laughs> that up, everybody on Earth will hate me forever because that's the normal reaction that would happen. That's how I would be. So so there was definitely a lot of pressure. Um, but I, I just had so much fun with it that I was able to sort of, push it a little bit to the side. Um, I will say the character that's hardest for me to write is Luke. And all the scenes with Luke and The Princess and the Scoundrel, I had to rewrite. And the reason why is because growing up, I had a brother named Luke. And the whole reason why I have really long hair is because of Princess Leia. So growing up, my brother played Luke and I played Leia and we would like attack each other with PVC pipes and like the whole thing. But like... That was my brother. So, of course, I'm going to make him be an annoying, idiotic brother because that's the Luke I knew. <laughs> so, the real Luke in my head kept matching up with the Luke in fiction. And so, like always, I would get notes back, like, why is Luke such a wet blanket? And why doesn't anybody like Luke? And I'm like, well, because he's an annoying brother. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh that's so funny it's so (laughs) common though honestly luke is often portrayed as kind of like whining and complaining
1: (laughs) a little bit of a wet blanket
0: (laughs) can be yeah i mean like who wants to go to tashi station and pick up his power converters
1: (laughs) and then he i mean he becomes a jedi knight but he's just kind of like too chill about it like
0: Come on. It's like though. we know, we know where you came from, Luke. <laughs> Come <I know>. on. <laughs> not fooling anybody. <laughs> I saw you drinking blue milk. <laughs> <laughs> I know I love he's always portrayed as like drinking hot cocoa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's really he's he's very much like cottage core. Like if this was real life, like Leia would be a punk and Han would just be like a country. He would be, like, the country farmer guy, but Luke would be just cottagecore. Like, I just want a glass of tea.
0: (laughs) Wrapped in his homemade quilt. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, I love him, but he doesn't really get badass until the last Jedi. That's true. Yeah, I mean, he kind of... It takes a while. It takes a while for him to get there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, it definitely is superseded in my head, like, both Luke's in my life. So so separating them is is very impossible. (laughs)
0: So how do you then like how how do you get into the characters voices? Do you have a process for that? Like I have a tendency to absorb as much material and then put it aside and then let it kind of filter. But you know, you're like you said you're working with characters everybody knows and has an opinion about. So how do you get into their head? Before the Princess and the
1: Scoundrel, I did watch the movie or well the last two movies primarily multiple times just back to back I was taking like notes on every bit of banter and try to capture some of that wit without reusing the same words and that sort of thing um Mm -hmm. but actually for that one specifically it got to the point where like some of some of the things that Han Solo says he gets away with because it's in Harrison Ford's mouth and Harrison (laughs) Ford is sexy enough that we will forgive a little bit of misogyny because he's really (laughs) hot there were a few times when I was like this might be pushing it like on text if you look at what he's actually saying this might be pushing it um so what I would do is I would read for Princess Leia and I would make my husband read for Han and we would go back and forth to see if we could get the voice where it would still be like fun banter instead of mean banter and sort Mm -hmm. of draw that line because banter can it can go either way so the way I got their voices was literally speaking aloud their lines in the book with
0: my husband Ah, oh, that's so interesting. Because you're right. Like, tone can be lost yeah. in text, right? <laughs> like-
1: yeah. Like, if I could just have Harrison Ford read it, everything would have been fine and nobody would have said anything and we would all just swoon. <laughs> but it <laughs> but really, like, black and white pages, you got to, I-, I wanted to make sure he didn't come across as like a jerk. You're <laughs> no more of a jerk than Leo would have.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has his moments where he's not terribly pleasant, but we like yeah. you said, you've got to forgive it because it's it's also kind of charming when it's hair set forward.
1: Right. And as long as you know where it's coming from. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a diamond in the rough, right? Exactly. Okay, well, let's transition then to your new work. I'm very Excited and very curious about your new book that's coming out, *The Night of the Witch*. It's coming out really, really soon. So, can you give us like a, a like a mini synopsis for our listeners so they can get intrigued and go out and buy it right away?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, *Night of the Witch* is a co-written book. I wrote it with Sarah Roche. and it's about a it's about the real witch trials of Trier, Germany, which a lot of Americans don't know about, but it was the bloodiest massacre of human life outside of war in Europe ever. Wow. So it was, it was a ma- like, we know about Salem witch trials, but hundreds of years before Salem, there was Trier. It really is one of the ones that really kicked off the whole witch hunting European experience. <laughs> That's not the right word, but it was one of the first <laughs> really, really bad ones. And um, Sarah and I were just we had both written different historical novels and we started talking about witch hunts and that one specifically. And it's all sort of evolved into the story of what if there were real witches And a real witch hunter who, and then they fall in love. Like the ultimate crux of the story is like the witch hunter falls in love with the witch he's been assigned to kill. And it it sort of brings in real magic and like how bad a witch hunt can be and extrapolates it from there. So we start in true Germany in 1599 and we end up in the Black Forest. So they have a little medieval road trip with real magic and witch hunters all around.
0: And it's really fun. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I was, you kind of tie into one of my questions. I know that you write fantasy, but how do you research for this? Was this based on something real? So that is, because I I knew that there were, obviously we know the Salem witch trials, but there were also crusades in Mm -hmm. Europe, not just in, you know, the Middle East. There was religious crusades against Protestantism, but that i mean—that doesn't even tie into things like the witch hunting in Europe. So when did this take place, this actual purging that you're referencing? Yeah, the real one took place
1: in the late 1500s in Germany. And you're, the Protestant and the Catholicism, and that was at its height of, of issues in the late 1500s. Um, the Trier Diocese was very Catholic. And then the further east and west things shifted around a lot. So there was a lot of research of like, where can they go? And should they pretend to be Catholic or should they pretend to be Protestant here? Like which which route are we going on that one? Um, So it was a lot of research in those lines. And we brought in as much real things as we could, because I'm very much the history nerd. Sarah did the magic and I did the history. And so it it is to the point, um, the first part of the book is basically a heist where the witch hunter and the witch team up to free the innocent people who have been like caught up in this this net. And there's a real plan to blow up part of the streets and the aqueducts and specific buildings. And I'm not saying that if you got a bunch of dynamite, it would work. But I am saying that I researched it really, really well. And that the tunnel system I found was accurate. And I did the math to figure out how much gunpowder you would need. So there you go, folks.
0: We'll just put it at that. Not (laughs) an overnight sensation. This is the work we're talking about. (laughs) Did you get to go in person to do any like in-person research for this or was it mostly online? Well, Sarah and I started
1: writing this as sort of a pandemic project. So we absolutely could not travel during that time because we wrote it at the height of the pandemic to the point where we couldn't even like email museums because all the museums were closed. So everything that we were researching, we just had to, whatever was public domain and whatever we could get access to without actually meeting humans. Um, but before the book came out, I did get a chance to go to Trier and sort of like double check everything. And it was, <laughs> it was really an amazing experience because I, it was to the point where I was using Google Street View and clicking to see how many steps it would take to get from building to building because most of those buildings are still there. And so I wanted to make it really accurate because you could literally visit almost every site we mentioned in the book. and. Then being there in real life was just mind-blowing. Because I was like, oh, if I turn left, there's the apothecary. And I would physically turn left, and it was right there. And I was like, whoa. It, it was just mind-boggling. It was also the first time this ever happened. But the second time this ever happened was when I got to go backstage at the um, Galactic Star Cruiser and see that. Because I had oh, to write wow. and the Scoundrel without before the before the Star Cruiser Hotel was built. The book was yeah. done before the hotel was open to the public and I never got to go inside. And fortunately in April, I was able to like pull some contacts and sneak <laughs> aboard and actually go in the physical space. And I was like, where's the deck? And there's the place where they carved their initials in the engineering room. And like, it was, it's so wild to have something that was in your brain become
0: like a real place you can stand in. That is, that must have blown your mind a little bit. It's so crazy to have it a- be something that you're so into mentally, you're, you're, you know, as you're working on the project for an extended period of time, and then to have it come to life around you, that must be so surreal. It it was mind Like, I can't
1: even describe it. It's the most surreal experience ever. Like, the two of them happening within a year of each other, going to Trier where Night of the Witch was, and then going to the Galactic Star Cruiser with T-Pats, and seeing... <laughs> What, what existed really in my imagination, like it's a physical place that I can touch and there's other people here and they're all seeing it too. So <laughs> it's just <such laughs> wild.
0: <laughs> okay. So I, I read you, you posted the other day, the, um, the dedication in your new book, The Night of the Witch. Yes. And I want to talk about it because it gave yes. me chills, honestly.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Do you want to read it or do you, do you oh. know it by heart? Oh, you've got your book right there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's why I have the book here. (laughs) Um, So the dedication is, to every witch that burned and every witch that watched and every promise they made in the smoke.
0: That literally just gave me goosebumps again. I just, oh, that is, first of all, it's beautiful. But second of all, it just evokes so much of the history and also the emotion and what is not spoken about those time periods and all that happened But is there any kind of hidden meaning? I mean, you don't have to tell us if if there's a hidden meaning there, but why did you choose that as the dedication? I think a part of it is because... So I wrote the character of Otto. It's dual
1: point of view. There's Otto and Fritzy. Otto's the witch hunter and Fritzy's the witch. I wrote the point of view of Otto. And you eventually find out in his backstory that his mother was burned as a witch. And, like, he knows she was innocent. Like, he, he knows absolutely. His father wanted to get rid of her. He wanted a different wife. It was easiest to accuse her of witchcraft. Like, he was a child at the time but could see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And that sort of powerlessness in the face of apathy became a huge motivator for him because – Even as the witch hunters, like many of the witch hunters, as in real history, they knew that these people were not real witches. They were the outcast of society. They were the people in the way. They were the protesters. They were easy to get rid of, but they knew they weren't real witches. Like some Mm -hmm. people probably were caught up in the hysteria, but there were too many people who profited from it for that to be the case. And so knowing that there was apathy, but also knowing that you couldn't say anything without then becoming a victim yourself became a foundation both for the
0: story and for that dedication. Yeah. The people who watched, you know, it was both a mixture of family who had to be Mm -hmm. silent, but also betrayers who maybe put that person in the flames themselves and had to stand and watch and see what their consequences were. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isn't it, it's just like such a chilling time period where you had no autonomy and to think, I know people say that, you know, times are hard now and they are, I'm not discrediting that, but. These people aren't being burned at the stake for just existing, you know? Right. Oh. Especially
1: when you add up who the victims generally were. Like they were generally women who had very little power, who were either spinsters or widows, usually poor. So poverty had a big role in it. And then anybody who was different. So if you were born with any sort of abnormality or anything like that, it was 900 times more difficult
0: just to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's so chilling. The fact that these things were done in the name of religion, also, when it was Mm -hmm. so cold hearted and not loving, the kind of the opposite of what we think of as religious doctrine, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I love about this kind of writing is because it is a way of educating people while telling a really great story, you know, and it's like, this is it's an emotional story, it's a human interest story, but it's also something that really kind of happened. I know there's magic in the story as well, but right. so you said that you wrote, you wrote auto. is that right? And yes. so how did that work to co-write a book with somebody? What was the process like with, with that? How did you guys do that? Oh, it was
1: so much fun because because it was during the pandemic where we were trapped at home and I would write, well, actually she wrote the first chapter and then she sent it to me and then I would edit hers and then write mine and then send it to her and she would edit mine and write hers. So we went back and forth and the end result was that we basically edited the book as we went and we automatically had a second set of eyes on our words. So the draft we made was a lot cleaner than a normal draft that I would make on my own. But also... Like I'm super competitive. Like I try I try to keep it on the low, but like I'm real competitive, y'all. And so she had a kissing scene, I was like, Well, I'll make a kissing scene even hotter. If she had like body horror I was like, I will make that even more horrific. And so- just played off of each other and was constantly one-upping. I don't even know if she realized how much this, this was a competition to me because Sarah was probably just like, you know I'm writing my little story. And I was like, I will do it too. And like, wow. it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out. We ended up with a great book. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that's tricky, right? Because especially because yeah. you might have different voices and you might have different styles. So to kind of blend that all together and be competitive yeah. at the same time it's pretty awesome
1: also worked out pretty well because some things I would care like passionately about and she was like okay you can put that historical detail about the Romans in there it's fine and then some of the stuff that she cared a lot about I didn't so like by pure accident we made all of our characters blonde because we just weren't I didn't keep up with it I never picture a person I don't keep up with it and when my editor pointed it out she was like you know maybe not have everybody be blonde Sarah was just like, oh my God, but Fritzy is blonde. I don't know what to do because she is blonde. I can't. I was like, I don't care. We can make Otto brunette. And she was just like, Are you sure that's such a major decision? I was
0: like, "Mm." (laughs) We just made him brunette. It's (laughs) fine. Well, that's perfect that you're like the perfect mix and match, right? Yeah, we had a good balance. (laughs) That's really good. That's so funny. Well, speaking of the saucy kissing scene, I saw that you've revealed some. some saucy artwork on your Instagram. Yeah. Does that come with a pre order or was that just for patrons? So that was going to be the pre order campaign
1: that Sourcebooks had, but um, they deemed it a little bit too saucy. And so now oh, they're no. going to get a new art print. Oh, so if, oh, no. if you were, like, sorry, if you submitted your pre order in like that one weekend window, they're going to honor those. But I, I think that's going to be it. And they're going to get a different art print
0: why is it, is it for, is it YA? It is, it is a YA book. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: I think people were starting to interpret that it was all romance and it's not all romance. Like there's definitely, like the scene is in the book, but it's not the whole book. So
0: yeah. Gonna, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> well, it made me kind of wonder how much say do you have over that kind of stuff, especially like the book covers, like you have a, a beautifully consistent kind of art style, especially for the last like couple of books that you've done. I mean, actually even just within your other series that you have. So as an author, how much say do you have over that kind of stuff? None. None at all. (laughs) None None at all. Um, For the books that I
1: self-publish, because I do self-publish as well. I do both. um, I get to dictate everything about it. So like Museum of Magic is self-published and I hired my own artist. I was like, here's my vision. And she made it even better than because i'm not a graphic person but then with the books that are traditionally published like the publisher just was like here's your cover hope you like it but i will <laughs> say the source books they they also do a lot of trials so they came up with multiple different ones and they did consider our, our input it wasn't completely blase but yeah but that's part of the thing with traditional publishing you you hand them some power because you trust that they know better and they generally do
0: yeah, yeah, they're hopefully, you know, people do judge books by their cover. And Absolutely. <laughs> it, it needs very to look good. Person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you kind of, I guess you touched on it a little bit, you said self publishing, I saw on your website mm-hmm. that you do serial novels. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit like that just immediately made me think of Charles Dickens and like Alexander Dumas, who would like publish a chapter every week in their newspapers. But is it similar to that? Is that can you explain? Yeah, it's the same concept, exact same thing. Yeah, um,
1: I started with Kindle Vella, and because Kindle Vella is still America only, I wanted to like widen it. So I also do it on Patreon now, but I do one chapter a week for Museum of Magic and House of Hex, the sequel to that. So those were all published one chapter a week. But I also, so I started Museum of Magic also during the pandemic because my Dungeons and Dragons team split up because we couldn't meet each other in real life. (laughs) Because of the (laughs) pandemic, we're like, I missed my dices. And so I would take, um, I needed the fix. So I started the serial as a way to do Dungeons and Dragons with my readers. And so what I do is every week I have a little outline and what the character will, the choices the character will face. And then I roll the dice to find out the outcome of all of it. And I do that on video for my Patreons. And then at the end, my patrons get to vote on one major decision. So they get to have the input and decide basically either how that chapter ends or how the next one will begin. And I wrote the entirety of Museum of Magic that way. And we're almost done with House of Hex. And I wrote it that way as well.
0: That is so interesting. And and what like a fun exercise for your brain too, because like, yes, we could come up with story beginning middle end and write, you know, all the bits in between, but to have to make it up as you go and kind of have a little bit of a a guideline or a rule with the, whatever the, the voting results are. That's really interesting. How fun. It's been a lot of fun and it's really made me have to think about how I
1: write and make sure that I have really strong choices Because I I was very honest, like I do all the dice rolling on camera, so my readers see it, they know I'm not faking it. And multiple times they pointed out like, we could tell from your face, that's not where you wanted the dice to roll. And like like, some of the times they have made these votes where I'm like, you guys, I could not have been more obvious that this was not a good choice. And yet they still voted that way.
0: You need to release like a director's cut where you have your version of it that comes out. (laughs) the whole reason why there's a sequel is
1: because they made a terrible vote because <laughs> it was, it was such a, I thought I was being so obvious. Like the whole theme of the first book is you don't trust the Fae. And then they voted to trust the Fae. And I was like, what?
0: <laughs> so I had to write a whole other book for it. <laughs> um. Okay. Let's see. Where am I? In my questions list. Uh, oh, People can pre order now, right? The book comes out soon, like October 3rd, I think. Is that correct? Which is also my birthday. Is it really?
1: And I'm not just saying that to get people into buying it, but if it works, you can totally go buy it. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: the best birthday gift you could give. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But people can pre order now, correct? So, why is it so important to pre order books for authors? pre-ordering
1: books, especially for traditionally published books is a huge deal because it basically tells the publisher how many books to print. And so if they get a lot of pre-orders, they're like, oh, this is going to be a big deal. We'll print more books. We'll do more marketing. We'll send it to more stores. We can tell the stores that people want it. It could get picked up by indie list and things like that. And so it, it is very, very vital. And like Nobody wants to say it, but Amazon ranking and Barnes & Noble ranking, it all kind of goes into it. And especially with a, a debut or like the first week of a book, that's your greatest chance of hitting the New York Times. So everybody wants all the orders to come in at once to give it like the biggest launch possible and hopefully like shoot it towards the stars. But yeah,
0: yeah, the orders really, 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 really do help. Yeah. So everyone listening, go pre-order your book. Where can people pre-order it then? Do, do you have a specific spot that's best? Oh,
1: anywhere is good. Like, honestly, anywhere you want to pre-order is great. Um, if you'd like to get a signed copy by both me and Sarah and get all the pre-order swag, the for- first tourist stop we're on at Malaprops is arranging that. So if you want to order a signed copy that has both signatures, tons of extra swag in it, you can get it from Malaprops and get all the bonus goodies. And they ship internationally.
0: Oh, awesome. It, Malaprops yep. is this small, uh, is this a small bookshop, is that correct? Yeah, it's a bookshop in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, oh, that's so, oh that's so great. It's so important to yes, Amazon is convenient and all of that, but to support local bookshops is just Oh yeah. I know everyone who works in that store and they are all really really good people. So I used to work. I I worked at Borders back when that existed, and the people you work with at a bookstore—they're amazing. You always already have something in common, and you all spend your paycheck right back at the store. So
1: it's just an endless circle. I keep, I joke all the time that people need to buy my books so I can go buy other people's books, but it is literally <laughs> true. <laughs> There's always like so
0: much book money, and we just swap it around with each other. That's it. It's true, and then your to read pile just gets taller and taller and taller and. Taller. Till it's taller the than the you. <laughs> I have a shelf that is just for my stuff I haven't read yet. Cause I was starting, it was all mixed in and I'm like, I need to separate it so I can visually see what I need to do here.
1: <laughs> I, I cannot separate it because then I would feel way, way too guilty.
0: <laughs> the whole bookshelf. This is not knowledge that I need. <laughs> <laughs> Putting extra pressure on yourself. No. That's like answering the door to the Faye. You just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be on a tour, then? Is that tr- you're going to go around and to other bookshops in different states, right? You're not just going to stick in North Carolina. So where can people see you? Um, <laughs> I do not
1: have the tour memorized.
0: <laughs> um We're
1: going to be in Asheville, Atlanta, Baltimore st louis and cincinnati i'm not sure what order that's in but we will be (laughs) in all those places and i will show up where my publicist tells me to show up
0: (laughs) (laughs) can they get the info
1: is it will it be on your website or where where can they find all on my website at bethrevis.com it's also on all my social media so i will be shouting about it with the specifics like the specifics are all done i just don't know them
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean I can't put you on the spot there, so okay. <laughs> <sorry about that.
1: laughs> even if you had told me to prepare, like that's dates and times, and my brain doesn't hold numbers.
0: <laughs> Mine doesn't really either. I have trouble remembering just normal things from day to day now. The file is full. Everything is yeah. filled in there.
1: There's words in there, no numbers.
0: None. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find you then? On social media and website and sarah as well i guess because she also co-wrote yeah um so i'm at bethrevis.com
1: she's at sarah and we both have instagram tiktok twitter which i will only ever call twitter um i yeah. technically have a facebook so if you need to track
0: me down there i will eventually check it there so we're basically <laughs> on all the socials <laughs> okay great that's awesome so everybody you have to go follow her and pre-order that book right now it's very important to support authors in my opinion (laughs) in my opinion too (laughs) I think it's important (laughs) I approve of that (laughs) okay so when we wrap up we usually do like some rapid fire questions Star Wars questions would you be game to do a few? sure All right, some rapid fire here's open are you a Jedi or a Sith? Jedi I do not appreciate the doubt on your
1: face at that. It was a doubt, I
0: swear. No no no, you're pretty close with the thing. You might be Sith. <laughs> you and me both then. <laughs> okay, so this is most things, Kenobi, so we do have to ask you some Obi-Wan questions. So um which version of Obi-Wan's hair is your favorite? The Padawan, the BG mullet, or the Revenge of the Sith? <laughs>
1: I love just your fish, gentlemen Obi Wan. Like we don't need the rat tail. Like no, <laughs> just, the the Obi Wan haircut in the Obi Wan television series. Like oh yes, I like I just that think
0: too. All of that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it redeemed the mullet. Really, it did. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> if you could wear just one Star Wars costume, what would it be?
1: Um. You know, I, I kind of feel like the Jedi robes would be really comfortable. Like, I'd love to be as hot as Leia, but I'm not. And that metal bikini does not look comfortable. But, like, a no, Jedi robe is just,
0: like, cloth. <laughs> I could lounge in that. So you know, we hear that a lot. People always say, Jedi robes look comfortable. It's like, that's what I want. <laughs> what special power would you like to have?
1: I would, I would like to be able to have the Jedi mind trick. The, you will do what I say. I'm... Like I said, I'm competitive and bossy. <laughs> so like If I could just be like, you will clean your room, son. That would be
0: nice. <laughs> I was going to say, it might come in handy for parenting.
1: <laughs> it is your turn to do the dishes again. Like,
0: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and what color lightsaber would you
1: have? Oh, yeah. Purple would be awesome. Um, but I feel like I'm not as cool as Mace, so I can't do that one. So I guess I would just have blue. <laughs> And I mean That's to be cool. fair, I do have the blue one.
0: Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. Is it Just custom or is it is it somebody specifically? It's it's a custom one from Galaxy's Edge. That's so cool. Yeah. I still haven't made one I want. I it's on my like life bucket list.
1: <laughs> so what you need to do
0: is you need to tell your
1: son it's his birthday gift and then tell him that it's too fragile for him to have and it needs to go up on mommy's
0: bookcase. that worked out real well (laughs) you need to write a parenting book next is what you need to do (laughs) I mean now
1: as I say that I do admit that calling me a Sith might be more accurate but (laughs) it was the closest I had to a Jedi mind trick
0: it's really oh, that's good (laughs) oh well that is all my questions. That wraps us okay. up. Do you have anything else you would like to add or say before we sign off?
1: Um, Thank you for having me. And Star Wars people are the best people. So I just love being a part of the community. So thank you for letting me live in this world a little bit longer.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Again, thank you for making time. Good luck on your tour. Good luck with all Thanks. the book sales. I'm really excited Thanks. to, I can't wait to read this book. Honestly, it's the Night of the Witch Sense sounds awesome and kind of like what i need in my life right now actually
1: (laughs) i mean i think it's a good life choice so
0: (laughs) i'm not biased at all no not at all it's fine (laughs) (laughs) well thank you again for everything and we wish you well may the force be with you Beth. thanks may the force be with (laughs) y'all Thank you so much for joining us here on the Most Things Kenobi podcast. We appreciate every single one of our patrons and are grateful for your support. If you'd like to support the podcast and become a patron as well, head over to the Most Things Kenobi Patreon. As always, you can follow us on Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you enjoy our podcast, feel free to rate us on Spotify and Apple. And if you need just one place to find all of these, head over to mostthingskenobi.com. So until next time, my friends, may the force be with you.